If you were locked up in a dark and dismal house, or even a cheery, usually pleasant house, and someone showed you a somewhat mysterious locked door and gave you a key with the promise that on the other side was a much better place where you could live and have a home forever, would you have the courage and the determination to take the key and open the door? Or would you, creatures of habit that we all are, and naturally cautious, convince yourself that you were comfortable enough where you are now and, and better off with the certainty of the present than risk a door and a key and a promise to the unknown, a bird in hand worth two in the bush, as conventional uh, wisdom has it. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. The Church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, from verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7 is the only church that the, uh, the Lord speaks so favorably of. And there are three things that generally attack, uh, 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 grab the attention of, of readers and commentators uh, of, that, of this church. And that is, um, there's a key, there's a door, and there's a pillar. Did you notice those? Um, Let's start with the key. Oops, I don't think I have this turned on. Well, you notice the key, and um, what is the key, and, and who has possession? Well, we, we actually know the answer to that, because 
um, the Lord Jesus, um, uh, the Lord Jesus answers the question as he speaks to the Apostle John uh, when he, John first sees Jesus, as recorded in the first chapter. Our Lord identifies himself to John, saying, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Verse 7 of our own text uh, in chapter 3 speaks of the same key, the words of the Holy One, the True One, the One who is the key of David who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one can open. The highest power and authority in the kingdom of God has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the True One, the Son of David, the victorious risen Savior, the Judge of all men, and He is the key holder. It's pretty clear. It's Jesus who will admit men and women into the kingdom or turn them away. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among men uh, under heaven, given among men by which men must be saved. He is the one who will admit or consign the bodies and souls of men to hell. You and I do not possess that key and we cannot counterfeit it. We can't we can't use our own key. We can't buy or earn or jimmy our way into heaven. Christ it is who opens and Christ closes and no one can gainsay or contramand uh, his purposes. The Apostle uh, Peter, uh, not him nor anyone who takes his name, they do not possess the key, nor ultimately even the church, insofar, except insofar as that we are faithful and true custodians of the gospel and faithfully proclaim it. The legitimate governors of the church rule only by the name and by the authority given them by Christ. They may give assurance of admission and they may pronounce dismission from uh, the membership of the kingdom, but only in accordance with the specific conditions and with his authority. The ultimate power and authority, the keys to the kingdom, belong and will ever remain in the hands of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to press the point a little further. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Ultimately, it's Jesus who brings the gospel to us, who opens our hearts to understand his promises and to admit a man or a woman or a boy or girl into his visible church and into the kingdom of God. It may be somebody you would never expect would find a place in the kingdom. But we know that outside of the gracious, regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, our Savior, our hearts uh, are, are spiritually dead. And they're lost in sin forever. Uh, Matthew Henry says it so well. He, Jesus, he writes, opens a door of opportunity to his churches. He opens the door of gospel utterances to his ministers. He opens the door of admission into the visible church, laying down the terms of communion. He opens the door of admission into the church triumphant, according to the terms of salvation fixed by him. And when he pleases, he shuts the door of opportunity and the, and the door of the words of grace, utterances, and leaves obstinate sinners shut up 
in the hardness of their hearts, he shuts the door of church membership against believers and profane people. He shuts the door of heaven against the foolish virgins who have slept away their day of grace and against the workers of iniquity, how vain and confident soever they may be. We're saved by grace through the sovereign work of God alone. To which someone will always object, saying, well, how then can God possibly find fault with us? If, if, if it is he who has mercy on those, those he wishes to have mercy upon and hardens those he wishes to leave in their sin and judgment, how can he hold us responsible to repent of our sins? How is that fair? Well, it's fair. Because he's the Lord and the Creator, and he's the Holy One, and he's the True One, and he always does what is right. And mainly it's fair because none of us deserve to be saved anyway. It was a question of fairness, then no one could be elected to eternal life. You and I know perfectly well how undeserving we are and how we are covenant breakers. It's a mercy that God would save any of us at all. And it's a great necessity. This doctrine of absolute sovereignty of God is so important because, listen to this, because we are so proud, we are so self-sufficient, we are so rebellious in our own quiet, canny ways sometimes, that there's absolutely nothing else that can humble us, nothing else that can get us on our knees save this doctrine. Uh, for only when we understand that Christ alone holds the key. Only when we understand that there's no negotiations and no bargaining and no special pleading and no beauty contests and no extenuating circumstances, there is nothing that will commend us to Jesus but humility and repentance. And for that, we have to ask and plead with God, Lord, save me for mercy's sake. Give me repentance and faith so that I might cast myself on you. Because only those who take the lowest place, only those who confess their inability, uh, their utter inability and their utter bankruptcy and their utter sinfulness and their utter need of Christ, only they can be saved. If you think you've got Jesus in your back pocket, like some kind of tract, and you can pull it out whenever you're ready and say the magic prayer and bam, you're in. And until then, you can do whatever you jolly well please. You are sadly mistaken. And no other doctrine... But this makes that so clear. You see, it's only the doctrine of election that brings proud men and women on their knees. For the, and, and for the simple reason that as long as you, you and I think we do have God in our back pocket, we can never be saved. The doctrine of election cuts the ground out from under proud sinners and brings us to the end of ourselves, which is what we need. <laughs> That's one great purpose for it. And also, one reason why proud men are so offended by it. Rather than complain, we should actually uh, consider it a matter of great blessing and security and even joy to read that our Lord Jesus, sweet Jesus, our Savior, has the key. And, 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 and He will open and He will save us and nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And nothing can impede us. No one can say no to us. No one can keep us from his love. There is no occurrence, there is no evil that will keep us from heaven and from our Savior. For the purpose and call of God and his election are irrevocable. Well, that's the first thing. The second is the door. 
Not just the key, but we see and read here about the door. Jesus says, I know your works. Uh, Behold, I have set an open door before you that no one is able uh, to shut. Now, what are we to make of this door? Well, to begin with, how can we possibly overlook the image of Jesus himself as the door or the gate, one of the great I am sayings. Uh, for through him alone can we enter into life. The Bible is filled with this image, messianically presented in the Old Testament, wonderfully fulfilled in the New. Jesus said, I am the door or the gate. If anyone uh, enters through me, he shall be saved. So, this door, first of all, represents opportunity. To say it again, uh, it is, first of all, an opportunity to turn in faith. Jesus says, changing the figure of speech only slightly, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life, and only a few find it. Here are two gates, writes John Stott, and both are open. One open uh, door opens to a broad and crowded thoroughfare. The, the road slopes gently downward, deceptively downward, and ends in destruction called hell. The other door opens to a sparsely populated narrow path that winds steeply upward and leads uh, to life in the city of God. You recognize John Bunyan. Well, that door is open to you today. Our Lord clearly and unambiguously says in verse 8, I have set before you an open door. But someday, it will be shut, closed and unavailable, and nothing can get you in, nothing at all. So you must bow down to him and confess him and ask him to save you. And he will. For no one, no one who comes sincerely to him will ever be turned away. There will be no one on the last day who will say, Oh Lord, I pleaded with you, I kept asking you to save me and you turned me away. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Everyone will make the choice they wish. Jesus is crying out and calling people to himself. But there's another meaning to this uh, door symbol, and one that fits perhaps more the circumstances of the text a little more directly and with regard to this door symbol. It's a symbol also of opportunity for service. It's an opportunity to be saved, but also an opportunity for service. For having passed through the, the first door of salvation, we always come to the second, which is the door of Christian service. Uh, God, in saving us, has for us wonderful works of service that he's prepared for each and every one of you. Um, in every Christian life, in every Christian church, there's a, always a door, there's always a way to serve the Lord. But don't you know, it's, it's not always an easy door. Certainly it wasn't easy for the Church of Philadelphia. They had at least three uh, issues to which our Lord refers. And we read for the first thing that they were very weak. Verse 8. I know that you have but little power. Now, they may have been very poor without an attractive building or a place to meet. They may have had some sort of nasty place to meet. 
their numbers uh, may have been made up from the very lowest rungs of society without any protection from the high and mighty of the city to stand up for them and protect them and speak well of them. Perhaps the church was very small or perhaps they had no great skilled evangelists or powerful preachers or, or teachers in their midst. For a second thing, <clears throat> they also faced the opposition of the Jews. I'm talking about how this door is not easy. And uh, they had the opposition of the Jews who, who felt greatly threatened by this new sect of Jews and Gentiles that called themselves Christians. The text refers uh, to the synagogue of Satan. You and I would hardly want to speak of a Jewish congregation or even another uh, a Christian congregation as a synagogue of Satan, but these are our Lord's words. And uh, he means by that uh, that it's filled with people who claim to be uh, a Jews, but were not, reminding us that that the true sons and daughters uh, of Abraham are to be identified not by means of their racial lineage, but by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're sons and daughters of the king of Abraham. So it's not hard to understand why the Jewish leaders particularly were at enmity with this young New Testament church, which they regarded uh, to be deceived and filled with heretics. They, they had misidentified or failed to identify the man Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, and who now uh, was unaccountably multiplying and growing uh, his church. Um, the synagogue leaders throughout Eastern the world uh, became more and more, as a historical matter of fact, to regard the Christians as an evil sect of their ancient and settled religion that needed to be discouraged and even stomped out. And throughout the book of Acts, the apostles Paul and Peter often found themselves persecuted by influential Jewish leaders in the community who considered it a good thing and a righteous thing to drive the followers of Jesus out of the synagogues and even out of the cities. But it must have been very hard for the church in Philadelphia to become so odious in the eyes of those who, with whom they had so much in common. And finally, there was this obstacle. The text speaks of an hour of trial that was coming upon them and together with those throughout the world uh, referenced in verse 10. Uh, there was some sort of persecution in the offing, uh, some sort of testing uh, that uh, we read about, in fact, throughout the entire book of Revelation and which is common, in fact, throughout the entire church age of every, of every age, and including today. Circumstances that that might convince a church to circle the wagons and draw in among themselves and hunker down and cancel their evangelistic endeavors and quietly wait for a more propitious hour. But Jesus, knowing all these things, knowing their weaknesses, knowing uh, the problems uh, they were facing, the opposition and the coming tribulation, does not regard that to be any sort of obstacle at all. Behold, he says to them in verse 8, I've set before an open door, which no one is able to shut. An open door, he calls it. A door of opportunity. God delights in these sorts of opportunities 
What do we read? God chose the foolishness things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The Lord doesn't want us to take the glory because we're so smart and and so convincing. He'd rather let us just do the work and he'll take the glory. And let us not make the terrible mistake of supposing then we all have to be, we must be smart or wise or strong or young or healthy to be any use to the Lord. Uh, There is no conclusion that is more mistakenly worldly than that. The Jewish opposition in Philadelphia would have done well to remember the words of their honored Jewish teacher, Gamaliel, who very wisely, you may remember, advised the Sanhedrin, saying, leave these men alone, referring to the apostles. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. In fact, the Church of Christ is unstoppable. Historical fact has borne it out over and over and over again through the ages. There will be, for all of us, hours of trial to which our Lord refers. And maybe in time to come, some greater hour of trial. That will all be things that happen until our Lord's return. But but please notice again how our Lord puts it in verse 10. Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming. Brothers and sisters, we have before us this great door of opportunity which no one and no obstacle can prevail against. Opportunities to share the gospel, to speak about Jesus, to assist in the prosperity of the church and his missionary work. In these COVID times, we can help clean the pews and put money in the plate and put tracts in the hands of workmen who come to our door. But we need to pray, pray, pray for converts. Pray the Lord will send dry, hungry people to you and give you words, stammering words to share with them. Just pray that. You might think, well, I I don't know what I'd say. Well, trust the Lord. Just say, Lord, send somebody to me. You know, I, I have no idea what I would say to this person. Maybe you do. You should, but the Lord can use all of us. Invite friends and neighbors to church. Help people to understand this is not a closed club, not a secret organization. The two men at the door are not bouncers. They're greeters and, and they're servants. And, and uh, we want people to come in and experience the joy of our worship and the pleasant, uh, the pleasure of our fellowship and the loving care of our congregation. We want people to understand that we are not a buttoned-up, got-it-all-together, two-school, cool-for-school group, but a hospital for, uh, for the curious and the needy and the hurting and the happy alike. If you and I got into the kingdom, well... Speaking for myself, I guess the door must be opened pretty wide. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Welcome to Jesus. Well, we've considered the, the door, the key, and finally, let's look at the pillar. Verses 11 and 12. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. 
the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. And how uh, should I possibly summarize um, all of those things? They sound so wonderful, and it is. Uh, And each of the letters, um, all the seven letters, including Sardis, for whom our Lord has no words of commendation at all, Jesus always leaves promises. Always promises. And they are often particularly striking. Uh, In this case, these promises are, are certainly striking. Uh, one feature, when we talk about pillars, uh, of ancient Philadelphia that we know about from secular literature is that the, apparently the region was dangerously volcanic and, and prone to earthquakes, one of which in 1780 had demolished the entire city. So, this language of pillars, uh, that something fixed in the ancient mind as firm and stable and unmovable, that's the way they thought of pillars, That would have represented an appealing uh, level of security. Uh, So with these words, our Lord promises his church that those who hold fast to Christ, and this will be a theme throughout all of the book, uh, that those who hold fast to Christ, who allow no one or nothing to shake their firm reliance on the loving grace of God, he will secure them forever. When we hear uh, this language uh, over and over again, it should grasp us. Uh, The one who perseveres, the one who holds firm to Jesus, the one who conquers the world, the flesh and the devil. I will make him a pillar in the house of my God and never will he go out of it. And three more things he promises. He says, I'll write uh, on him, on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. These things he'll put on us. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't uh, know what to tell you about that exactly, except to say that to have the name of God put upon us and to have the name of the new Jerusalem put upon you and to have the name of Jesus put upon you, all of that's represented to us as a reward and a gift to his faithful ones. So it must be something awfully good. Uh, Something, I suppose, that we will understand and appreciate more and more and better and better with each passing day in paradise. So, here's where I conclude. John Stott says, Become a pilgrim in this life and you'll be a pillar in the next. I like that. Become a pilgrim in this life, and you'll be a pillar in the next. In other words, dare to go through uh, the door of service, and you will never go out uh, of security to a place of insecurity outside of paradise. Tredge on as a faithful servant, Uh, Risk your name for Christ in this world and on your pillar in the next world will be permanently inscribed those three names. There is for us a key and that key is Christ, the way to heaven. There is for us a door and that door is a door to eternal life and a door to service. 
a door of opportunity that cannot be closed, not by this world, not even by the failure of Jesus' of people. For Christ will build His church, and we're all part of that building project. That's good news. Jesus promises us to be a pillar in the temple of His God, the heavenly Jerusalem, if we will but press on, resting in His saving righteousness, His saving work, serving Christ uh, in opportunity that He gives us day by day. Life, peace, purpose, despite it all. What more could you ask for? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this church. Um, We wonder how it would be to be in that church. But Lord, we know the church we're in. And we know the wonderful promises you give to us. And the challenge you give to us. Lord, we thank you that you are uh, the key. And that you are the door, Lord. That you are uh, the one who gives to your people life and peace and purpose. Will you give us grace in this coming week? Uh, to love you and serve you and rest in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.